open up to Luke chapter 15 with me, please. Uh, chapter 15, you'll notice, will is, uh, contains really three parables. Uh, it'll take us three weeks to cover chapter 15. Um, today, our text is verses 1 through 10. That's where we're at, verses 1 through 10. Um, one of the important things we'll see this morning is the context of these parables. Uh, we'll look at the context, we'll look at the first two parables, and then we'll look at the last parable, the parable which many people call the prodigal son. Uh, it's really not the prodigal son. If you look at verse 11, it said the man had two sons. So the prodigal son and elder son. Uh, we'll look at that, last, that, second that third parable Excuse me, on the next two weeks. But today, verses 1 through 10, we'll cover the context and we'll cover the first uh, two parables. So Jesus, we know from chapter 9, is headed to Jerusalem. His final year of earthly ministry is coming to a close. Large crowds of disciples will begin to shrink. Religious leaders' hostility toward Jesus will grow. And he's been announcing that he's the king. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. And that the kingdom has come because the king is here. It's the one that Israel's been waiting for, the king. He's been demonstrating this, uh, this kingliness, this authority over uh, all things, healing diseases, uh, cleansing defilements, even raising the dead, preaching that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is here. He's calling all men and all women to repent, to enter into the kingdom through repentance and faith. We've seen that over and over. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord our God. Some of the re Jesus' uh, relentless enemies are known as the Pharisees and the scribes. Pharisees get their name uh, from a word that means separatist. They would separate themselves thinking that they were better, or they were uh, above the rest of the world. They must, they must remain separate and pure and not be defiled by hanging out with sinners. They're called Pharisees and scribes. We'll see that. They were, they were the ones, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who really tried to perfect God's law and its application to the point of strangling the people of that day. They had all kinds of man-made man -made rules that people could never carry. They were the moral ones. They, they obeyed the letter of the law. They, they worshipped faithfully. They, they prayed uh, constantly. And the resentment and this hostility of the Pharisees and the scribes is partly due to the fact that Jesus confronts them many times about their hypocrisy. He identified them as self-righteous and, and not really, truly righteous. They were whitewashed tombs. They, they looked good on the outside, but inside they were dead. He told them that they were excluded from the kingdom. We saw that over the past couple of weeks. They were excluded from the kingdom because they were, they were inwardly corrupted and corrupt. They, 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 they were headed to divine judgment if they, had not, if they do not repent and turn and recognize who Jesus is, the Messiah, the King, the one that has been promised. So Jesus rebukes them, Jesus confronts them. It's not the, you know, the best way to make friends and influence people, but that's what Jesus did. And we already witnessed, that we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus takes this posture of a missionary, seeking and pursuing all people, even engaging these religious leaders who are hostile toward Jesus, who are enemies of Jesus. He shares with them the truth. Unfortunately, many of them will, 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 will soon play this this role, this providential role in, in the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus is on his way. The hostility is growing. The disciples are starting to shrink. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And, he, and we, we meet him here in this conversation in chapter 15 of Luke. And we see these parables. Now remember, a parable, parabolo. Parable comes from two words. Para means besides, balo means to cast. It's Jesus that takes a story that they understood, a natural setting, 
something that they would understand, something physical, and he lays it aside, he throws it, he casts it along, that's what a parable means, a, a, a spiritual truth, something that they didn't understand. And one, the natural explains and teaches what Jesus is trying to say spiritually. That's what parables do. The other thing we need to understand about this text, all texts, but especially here in, in Luke 15, is that this audience was a very different audience, a very different time, and a very different culture. When we come to biblical texts like this and we read parables, it's critical for us to remember that the Bible is an ancient uh, Middle Eastern book. Its truths are set in a culture that is very atypical of the culture we live in. And it's easy to take something out of context or to, to run to try to make application without first understanding the culture and what Jesus was saying in that culture. What was the original audience and what was the original uh, one who's saying these words meant in that day? Then, when you understand what God said, then you can bring application today. That's good hermeneutics, good interpretation skills. We want to exegete the passage, which means bring out its meaning from the original text, from the original audience, from the original speaker. Before, Otherwise, you, what you're doing is you're, uh, Pastor Chris and I were mentioning this, talking about this this morning, you eisegete, which means you read into the text. We want the text to speak from the text, from what Jesus was saying. So it's very important as we read this parable, and you'll see I'm going to go back to the context and to the culture before we come to any kind of application. So... With that being said, Luke chapter 15, we'll see this parable in three, or this, excuse me, in verses 1 through 10, in three movements, three headings. The first is the reason for the parable. Jesus gives us a, a clear uh, reason why he's telling these parables. The second is the rescue of lost things. We'll see that. And then lastly, the repentance that leads to joy. The reason, the rescue, and the repentance. Number one, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 15 is very telling. Okay, let me read it again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and they said, This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So, verse 3, he told them this parable. Very important context here. The three parables that he is going to show us proceeds from this encounter that he has here in the first couple of verses. Very important. So the first question we need to ask is, who is Jesus speaking to? Who is them in verse 3? So he told them this parable. Now, most likely or, or probably that the, the sinners and tax collectors who were drawing near were probably in earshot or some of them were probably heard what Jesus was saying. But the main thrust of this parable, the main thrust of telling these parables were directed toward the religious leaders, the, the moralistic ones, the law-abiding, Bible-thumping religious leaders of Jesus' day. Okay, They, them, are the Pharisees and the scribes. He says to them, those who are grumbling, those who are saying he eats and, 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 and fellowships with sinners, those who are coming to Jesus, tax collectors and sinners, those are the Pharisees that were grumbling. Those are the Pharisees that were saying those things. And Jesus is talking mainly to them. So what you have here in this text is two categories. You have the, the moralist and the immoral. You have the in, those are in, those are out, those are religious, and those are irreligious. What also is important to note in this text is the verbs. 
When, when it says in, the tax collector and sinners were all drawing near to him, the Greek present tense verb, which indicates this was ongoing. Okay, this was an ongoing occurrence. This was regularly happening in the ministry of Jesus. They were drawing and constantly and continually drawing near to Jesus. Okay, flocking to him, sinners and tax collectors. Even the verbs in verse 2, same thing, receives and eats with them, suggest this ongoing pattern. He regularly, these people regularly flocked to Jesus and he regularly had fellowship and ate with them. And the text is clear. The religious leaders were not very happy that they were flocking, that these sinners and these tax collectors were, were following, were flocking to Jesus. They were mad that he was eating with them. Now, we, we've talked about this. We talked about dinner with Jesus. To sit down and eat with people in the, in the Near East meant there, there was this level of fellowship, level of acceptance, um, level of care, level of, uh, of community. And they were saying, look, Jesus, you're, you're a rabbi, you're, you're a teacher of the law, you don't, you don't see them, these sinners and the tax collectors, for who they are? Like, they don't go to our services, they, they don't believe what we believe, they, they don't hang out with the people we hang out with. And if you remember in, in, in Luke 5, Levi, Matthew, was what? A tax collector. And we said then that they were one of the most hated people in that day. They were hired by the Roman authority, the Roman Empire to collect taxes for the Romans, for their royal revenue. And if you wanted to work and collect taxes for them, if you remember back in chapter 5, what the Roman government would do, they would, they would uh, contract a, a, a Hebrew in that lived in that community for the, re, to, to the gathering of this taxes. And what they would do is, very interesting, you would, if you wanted to collect taxes for the Roman Empire, you would put in a bid. And of course, the highest bid would win. And then you would pay that bid. And then you would collect the money that you paid for. Therefore, you would get the money that owed you, that was owed to you. And of course, you would always collect a little bit more. You're always collecting a little bit more. So they had this reputation. They, they, they were people that were, were, were considered traitors. They were fellow Hebrews who were working for the Roman Empire, who was collecting taxes for them, and then greedy and taking on more and more money for themselves. Can you imagine that? Those were the sinners and tax collectors. Can you imagine just for a moment that Mexico began to invade America? Pardon the pun, but... And we were taken over. And one of our American neighbors was contracted by the Mexican government and extorted you for taxes. How much love would you have for that person? That's the tax collectors. The sinners, they were just, that's a blanket statement. When they, when they say, and the sinners, that's, that's, that's a junk draw of bad behavior, right? They were the immoral ones. They didn't obey the law. They were infamous in their evil actions. They were the thieves, the drunkards, the prostitutes, and anyone else who refused to, to uh, conform to the customs of the sacred religious communities. They were their own lords. They were their own saviors. They would do whatever they wanted to do. It's like you're eating with them, those traitors, those sinners. Obviously, Jesus does not share the same separatist mentality of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, here in our text, is interested in loving and caring for those undesirables, 
regardless of what others may think. He wants to love them. He wants to share with them. He wants to teach them. He wants to draw them to the Father. So these parables are mainly in response to the attitude of this separatistic Pharisee's scribe's attitude toward others. And they're grumbling. I think when, when he says they were grumbling, it's a consequence of ingratitude and, and thanklessness, right? Unfaithfulness. Listen, when we're grumbling on the inside and we're constantly grumbling, it's because we're not thankful. Thankful people don't grumble. It recalls the grumbling, if you remember back in Exodus, that the people against God. And here it's against Jesus. The Pharisees' rejection of Jesus only proves their lack of love for others, for the lost. It's further reflection, as we've been seeing over the past few weeks there, the leader's rejection of God. It's in response to the attitude that Jesus says, I got some parables I want to tell you. And that, that, that begs a question for us to think through today. And you can think about it more in your community groups. And it's this. Hold on to your seat. If Jesus is teaching, loving, and having compassion toward others, and it's constantly attracting irreligious sinners of his day, while offending Bible-believing, Bible-thumping religious people of his day, what does that say to us about who we attract with our message? Does our message, does our mission today have that same effect? Or does our message tend to draw the, the moralistic, conservative types only? I think it's fair to say that if the teaching of the church and the life of the community of believers does not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then maybe we're not declaring the same message that Jesus is declaring. Are we attracting more of the elder sons, as we see in the next parable? They represent the Pharisees. Or the younger son represent tax collectors. It's something to think through. Maybe, maybe we, me, we need to look deep in our hearts and see if is our mission and our message lined up with Jesus' mission and his message. Look who's being drawn to him. Look who's being repelled from him. It's something to think about. It's something to think through. It's something to really chew on. Like I said, discuss it in your community group. What does that look like? What does that message and mission look like? Who, who's being attracted to the message and the mission of Jesus? So Jesus addressing these two categories of people with three parables, not just the prodigal son, but the elder son as well, and with these three parables, with the lost coin, with the lost sheep, with, with the parable of, of, the, of the two sons, he's trying to show the Pharisees and us this morning the truth about the heart of God. And the reason that Jesus wants to hang out with those filthy sinners. He tells them that the reason I associate, them, associate with them is because I am the savior of all people. Jesus didn't share in their activity. Jesus wasn't the drunk guy with the lampshade on his head. That's not him. But he did befriend them. And he called them to come to know God and challenged them to repent. The kingdom is meant for people who recognize their need for God. Jesus points the way, and then Jesus, what, is the way. That is why our series, right, the Gospel According to Luke, Mission to the World. Luke is showing us that, listen, Jesus loves all people, wants to save everyone, not just Israel, not just the religious, but the outcasts, the marginalized, those sinners. Aren't you glad he came to save sinners? What's our message? What's our mission? Who are we attracting? 
Are we loving all people? The reason for the parable. Now let's look at the rescue of lost things. The first thing, the first lost item is the sheep, verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he, what, finds it? And when he's found it, lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Verse 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently, seek diligently until she finds it? Both parables are somewhat, we'll look at them, but they're somewhat saying the same thing. You have, we have something of value. If you have something you love and something you value and love gets lost, you go after it, you seek it, and you find it. No one simply ignores the loss, but does whatever one can do to find what that with what that has been lost, what has been lost. Now, we know in ancient Israel, even today, shepherds care for flock out on the field. Not a high-paying job, and back in that day, actually, it was a very highly influential job. Uh, Jesus taught in John 10 what a good shepherd does. He tends his sheep, he cares, provides, and protects his sheep. Jesus said in John 10, 12, but there is a hired hand, not a shepherd. It's a hired hand who watches sheep, who's not a shepherd, he's hired. He does not own his own sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Good shepherd, bad shepherds. You read Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 22. God had a lot to say about the shepherds of Israel and not doing a very good job shepherding his people. And I think the religious leaders, is to the one Jesus is speaking to, has already had their hair stand up on the back of their neck a little bit. They're called shepherds who are supposed to take responsibility to feed and care for the sheep. Just like in the Old Testament, the, the leaders were to, to shepherd and to care for God's flock. It's, it's, it's a, a metaphor used all throughout Scripture, including the Old Testament. But what Jesus is saying is, you're like hired hands. Look at what it says in verse 4. What man of you, I'm talking to you, Pharisee, I'm talking to you, scribe, I'm talking to you, shepherds of Israel. Right? These men claim that the Lord their God was their great shepherd and they considered themselves spiritual leaders of the church, spiritual shepherds of Israel, yet they failed to recognize Jesus before them, all the promises that he made, the king was going to come and save his people, and they didn't care. That's the bottom line. They didn't care about their sheep. And just like when Jesus pointed out the hypocrisy, when he healed on the Sabbath, had compassion on the Sabbath, and healed people, He's pointing out that, you know what a good shepherd does? A good shepherd leaves the 99 who are safe and go off and, and they go after the one who's been wandered away, who has wandered away. I mean, if the tax collectors and sinners are so-called outside the fold of God, why are you separating yourself from them? Why are you ignoring them? Why are you running from them? Why would you ignore the mission to declare and demonstrate the good news of the gospel to the lost Folks who are outside the fold, that's the question. Rather than search and rescue the lost sheep of Israel, the religious leaders misguide them, avoid them. They're sheep. Jesus used the term sheep on purpose. The Bible uses the term sheep on purpose. Sheep are vulnerable. Sheep are dependent. Sheep are leadable. They could be led. But when they get lost, they wander off. They can't find their way home. They're defenseless against Danger, almost all danger. When, 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 think about it. When a sheep gets lost and they're in the middle of, 
uh, the woods or wherever they are, they don't have a whole lot of fighting experience. Right? I mean, when's the last time you were scared to death of a sheep? He might bite, you know, I mean, they've got claws and fangs and, you know, like, they're out there all by themselves. Like, there's not a whole lot of fighting power there. Sooner or later, sheep will fall off a cliff, starve, starve of starvation, uh, um, die of starvation, or get torn to pieces by wild animals. And Jesus is not saying, just so you know, he's not saying leave the 99 in open field so that they are, are vulnerable. And that day, if you, had, if you had 100 sheep or 200 sheep, whatever it was, there was more than one shepherd. You, right? you, you would leave the 99 in an open field with other shepherds to keep watch as you went, what, and chased after that one in the open country? So it's not, it's not, not Jesus is saying, just leave the 99 and let them get destroyed. No, he's saying, leave them safe and go and look until you find the sheep. In those days, even if they found the remains, they would keep looking, at least until they found their sheep. It's not a casual search. We're not like, oh, we lost the sheep. I don't see it. All right, let's go. That's not what they did. Right? No, you keep looking, you keep looking, you keep looking until you found that sheep. Like I said, even if, even if it was, was uh, destroyed or, or eaten, you, you, you know where your sheep was. And the imagery here is clearly a reference to God's tender Tender and, and, and um, pursuing protective care. Given the responsibility the sheep could have been permanently lost or, or, or eaten by wild animals, the shepherd just rejoices when the sheep has been found. And let me say this too, just as a side note. I don't want to read too much into this parable, but I think it's fair to say when a sheep wanders from the shepherd off by itself and it's vulnerable, it could be could be uh, under attack and, and, and just vulnerable. Who else, or what else is that sheep leaving behind? The other sheep. So when you leave the great shepherd, you leave the great shepherd's family. Both are important for safety and care. The Bible teaches us that like we, uh, Isaiah tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. All. We have all turned to our own way. You see what this is teaching us? It teaches us that we need salvation. It teaches us how thoroughly we need to be rescued. And when the search proves fruitful, what does the shepherd do? Verse 5. He places it on his shoulder and takes it home. You see, when you find the sheep, your job's not over as a shepherd. Right? They don't follow you home like a dog. They don't follow you home. In fact, my research this week is I'm not a shepherd. Uh, I found what's very interesting is that when a shepherd would find a sheep that was out for a long period of time, they would sometimes just lie down helplessly. Or there are times where the, the adrenaline, the sheep would run around and the shepherd would have to grab it. And either way, whether it's just exhausted or, or freaking out, the shepherd would have to grab it and carry it up on his shoulders. And it would weigh up to 100 pounds. And then he would hike the miles and miles back to where the other sheep were. Dr. Riken, in his commentary, I thought this was wonderful. I want to read it to you. Just that picture of rescuing and caring. This is what he says. The shepherd can feel the weight and the warmth of his sheep. The rise and fall of its breathing. The beating of its heart. 
The sheep is close enough to nuzzle the shepherd's face, exhausted by its struggle in the wilderness and too weak to walk back home. The sheep has found safety and security in its shepherd's arms, end quote. You know what that means? Like sheep who contribute nothing to their rescue, so do we. We contribute nothing to our rescue and to our salvation. The shepherd has done everything for the sheep. He leads them. He carries them home. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the gospel. It's not about us doing. It's not about us finding our way. It's not about our moral life. It's not somehow working our way back to the shepherd. It's about the shepherd seeking us, leading us. Forgiving us and granting us salvation. It's the good shepherd who's pursuing. It's the good shepherd who's rescuing, redeeming, and saving, and carrying us. Isn't that what Jesus did? Puts us on his back, right? As he, what? He carried the cross. Again, upward of 100 pounds up the hill to Calvary. Carried our sins on his back. He did all the work that needed to be done to bring sinners back into a reconciled relationship to a holy God. Jesus bears us. Salvation is when Jesus bears us and our sin on his back. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The great shepherd ready to pick you up. You don't have to work. You don't have to, to, to walk your way back. Jesus, shepherd, picks you up. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to embrace. He's pursuing us. He's pursuing you because he loves us. Doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. It doesn't matter how long you strayed. The shepherd's here for you to carry you home. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? I love what Jesus does here, and he's done it before. He flips the scripts. He talks about men. He's talking to men, and he's talking about shepherding who, that are men, and then he shows honor to women. It's an ancient story told by the rabbis in antiquity about a man carefully searching for a lost coin is, is like someone who is faithfully searching, a faithful Jew searching the hidden treasures in the Torah, or the Torah, the five books of Moses. We know from Luke, the account here in the Gospel according to Luke, that Jesus shows uh, more care about women than any other Gospel account. There are parables, there are narratives where Jesus is talking about men, and then he flips the script and he brings in women. Into, that was unheard of in that day. Unheard of in that day. But he's interested in teaching, loving, caring, teaching theology to women. I mean, look at the text. In some way, this woman who finds her lost coin shows us something of the character of God. The character of God. She represents God in some ways. Now, God is spirit, yes. He transcends gender. And yes, God has purposely revealed himself to us in Scripture using masculine language, masculine pronouns, terms and imageries, declaring to be the Father, our Father. But here, this woman does show us something about God. We see that in Scripture. Isaiah 66, God speaking. As one whom his mother comforts, so I, the Lord, will comfort you. Now, we're not saying that God now is mother. I'm not saying that. Please don't go home and say, this is what Pastor Lou said. I am not saying that. Don't get me wrong. 
But to help us to understand the comfort of his compassion, God says that his love is like a mother's affection for her son. That's what Isaiah is telling us. And here we see God's pursuit of sinners is like a woman who pursues a lost coin. It's amazing. Amazing. Especially in that day and in that culture. Most commentators agree the coin was a drachma. It, it was worth, it, the value was a full day's wage uh, uh, for a common laborer. It was precious to this woman. We, I think we could sense by the story that she was poor. Um, equivalent maybe to a $100 bill or a $200 bill for us today. Right? Anybody lose a $100 bill, you're going to stop what you're doing, you're looking for it. Right? You drop a dime, you're not caring. But like, you lose, I lost a $100 bill, I'm, I'm going to go backtrack on where I think I lost it. I'm certainly going to look for it. It appears that these 10 coins are her life savings. She don't have a big bank account, portfolio, uh, a credit card, like not in that day, right? So some total of what she has and she carefully looking for that one silver coin, very precious to her. Most likely women in that day, especially if she was alone, Lived in a very small house. I think that I read somewhere, the size of maybe a, a one-car garage. Rudimentary furniture. No windows and doors and lights like we have today. It's dark. Thick walls, dirt floors, maybe straw on the floor. Simple, present, peasant, small home. Easy to lose a coin in the dark. Covered straw in the dust, between the cracks or maybe the wall. What does she do? She turns the furniture upside down, right? She grabs a broom. She's sweeping the floor from corner to corner to corner to corner, lights a lamp, checking every single nook and cranny in a home in hopes that she'll find this little, tiny, shiny silver coin. What is Jesus showing us? How precious we are to him. It shows us the great love that God has for lost sinners and also shows us once again that a coin, a lost coin, will stay lost until it is found. We're in the same situation spiritually. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot find ourselves. Once we are lost, we will stay lost until God rescues us, finds us. I'm, just, I'm not just infinitely lost. The scripture says I'm infinitely loved and valued by God. I'm his treasure. And you know, listen, we're all created in the Imago Dei, in the likeness of God. In many ways, all his creation belongs to the creator. But we'll see when one comes to faith in Christ, they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, God gets us back. We go from being his creation to be his beloved. We go from creation to children of God through faith in Christ. You ever feel like your, your, your life's not worth living? If God doesn't love you, he loves you. The scripture, this, this story tells us that God loves each and every single one of you. We're not just infinitely lost, we're infinitely loved. That's what the parable is teaching us. Jesus says that the shepherd and the women together reveal his heart as he searches for lost people. His shepherding compassion, the immense value he places on souls, that's what it's teaching us. And when you understand, when you come to understand and have a greater understanding of the fact that you are completely and utterly unable to save yourself, and then God comes. The pursuit and love of God comes, and God forgives, and God receives you. That changes everything. God's arms are open wide for those who are lost, but you come on his terms. And the way you come is to repentance, as we will see, and that will bring much 
joy. Verse 5 again. And when he has found it, that's the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders. What does he do? He rejoices, rejoicing. And when he comes home with that sheep, he calls his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. What a, what a glorious picture of the love and the joy of God. Heaven is compared to the shepherd and to his neighbors who rejoice in the recovery of this lost sheep. Verse 7, so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who, no need, who need no repentance. Now, Jesus either, he's talking about those who need no repentance or need, who are righteous who need no repentance or those who have already trusted him and are clothed with his righteousness. They're already righteous because of Christ's righteousness. I don't think so, though. I, I, I think there's a shot over the bow, man. I think there's a kind of a sarcastic twist. It was like, you know what, you Pharisees, you think you're righteous, but you're not. That's what I think. You think you, you got it all together, but you're not righteous. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. How many? None is righteous, no, not one. Maybe a couple? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have sinned, all have turned aside together, they become worthless. He does, no one does good, not even one. There's no one righteous, the Bible tells us. Heaven has no joy for the self-righteous. And what Jesus is saying is, do you guys understand what makes God have joy? It's the recovery of sinners. Heaven's joy is in the recovery of lost sinners who repent. That's what the scripture says. Verse 9. And when she has found it, the coin... She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, what, same thing, rejoice with me. I have found the coin that was lost. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Now think about that. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 10 with me for a minute. We like to say, and I've heard it said, I've been a Christian for a while, and some of you have as well. When someone comes to faith in Christ, what do we say? The angels are rejoicing in heaven. Right, you heard that before? Right? That's not exactly what it says here. It says there is rejoicing where? Before, in front of, the angels when a sinner repents. There's a difference. When God goes after his creation, pursues sinners like you and me, and they turn from their sin and repent, and they are found, God rejoices. That's what the text is saying. And that the joy of heaven in the earlier verses, that's just a, a, a Hebrew idiom of, of saying the same thing. When you talk about heaven rejoicing, we, we think of celestial beings, but in the Hebrew mind, they think about God as the one that rejoices. And the first two parables here speak wonderful, wonderful things to us, pictures of, of, of the wonder and the beauty and the glory of God as a missionary. The heart of God is a missionary seeking, saving lost sinners who wander away, who are lost. And God, who seeks and finds them, has great joy when he finds and restores lost children. So when someone repents and turns to God for forgiveness and by faith becomes a child of God, listen, God throws a party. Isn't that amazing? God rejoices. God is glad. God shouts for joy in the presence of angels. Yeah, angels are probably rejoicing in the presence of God. 
They're honoring, they're worshiping, they're glorifying God. But the text says that when we repent, as sinful as we are, and we turn to God, there's rejoicing that God rejoices. All the angels, I don't know what's going on. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's, um, I read this somewhere this week. I thought it was really cool. We don't know, this is speculation. But maybe the angels are just quiet, waiting. And then God explodes in joy. And then they celebrate. God rejoices. The cause, sinners who repent. So repentance is important, right? We'll look more at it next week, but let's look at it just for a moment before we close. True repentance is important because God's rejoicing over sinners who repent. We'll see it next week, but again, three things I just want to share with you quickly about repentance. Repentance, uh, the word repentance, Greek word metanoia, you probably know that already, it comes from two Greek words, meta, implying uh, a change, and then the other word means to perceive. It's, it's uh, implying of the mind. So metanoia, repentance, literally means a change of mind. So repentance, the family listen, begins with an intellectual decision to acknowledge sin. I've sinned against God, rebelled against God, I love things more than God, I worship things that are not God, and, 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 and I'm, I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that my sin is not only against others, but my sin is primarily, I acknowledge this, is before God, against God, I should say. There's, there's acknowledgement in the mind. There's also this emotional aspect of repentance. There's despair and brokenness over sin. So it's not only that my sin is against God intellectually, but my sin breaks the heart of God and it breaks my heart. There's intellectual, there's an emotional aspect. We'll see this next week even deeper. But it can't stay there. It can't just stay in the head. It can't just stay in the heart. It has to move into the decision. It must be volitional. A determination to turn from being, from living my life of sin to turning and Trusting in God. Genuine, genuine repentance involves confession. I acknowledge my sin before God. Contrition is a brokenness about my sin before God. And then change. I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin, living in my sin, wanting my sin, desiring my sin, enjoying my sin, to turning from that and saying, I want Jesus. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he rose from the grave. And I am no longer my own life. My life is now hidden in Christ. And I will walk with him. That's genuine repentance. And some of us may be struggling this morning or simply resisting repentance, thinking, you know what? I, maybe if I just keep my sin under wraps, maybe nobody will know. You know, maybe, maybe God will never find out about my rebellion, about my sin, my folly. As if God doesn't know. Maybe knowing that God rejoices. God, our creator, rejoices when we repent. He rejoices. So we should rejoice. Repentance is a gift. Repentance brings joy to God, to bring joy to others, and as disciples of Christ. As missionaries for Christ, we should rejoice with others when they repent. Don't you love that? God loves to forgive. God rejoices when we repent. Family, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, Jesus is looking for you. And he's here by the power of his spirit to find you. 
Jesus saves, Jesus forgives, God transforms, and God rejoices. And we have this wonderful opportunity, family, to share in the joy of God by telling people about Jesus, the good shepherd, and to see Jesus pick them up and their sins and shame and carry them back to going to the cross and then bringing sinners into a reconciled relationship to a holy God and back into the flock of God. Disciples are to look for lost sheep, missing coins, and to celebrate with God when God rescues sinners. That's the story. Declaring and demonstrating the gospel is grounded. Declaring and demonstrating the gospel is grounded in the joy of recovery. Isn't that true? Persistently sharing Jesus with others. Finding lost sheep, missing coins is our priority as disciples, demonstrating and declaring the gospels. That's what Jesus did, and that's what we should do as well. What a joy it is when Jesus finds someone in a helpless situation, someone lost and far away, and then Jesus comes and rescues that sinner, cleanses them, washes them, and they are adopted into the family of God. What a joy, what a joy. What a joy in God himself. So let me ask you, Do you know that God is diligently looking for you? Maybe you're here this morning, never trusted Christ, looking for you to bring you back to himself. To bring you back into a reconciled relationship. Going from creation to children. From creation to the beloved. The band's coming up, and I, I want to share a story with you, family. Listen to this story, okay? I heard this story years ago. There's a story about a little boy. This little boy carved a little boat with a little knife. He whittled it out of a piece of wood. He shaped it himself. He made it with his own hands. He even, he even made the little sail himself. And one day he said, you know what, I'm going to go down by the nearby river and see if my boat will float. It worked so well as he put the boat, little boat into the water. A gust of wind came by and it began to go outside of his reach. He began to panic and he just watched the wind and the current drive the sailboat out of reach and then out of sight. Several weeks later, he was down in town. He looked inside a window of a pawn shop, and there was his boat. And, and he rushed inside. He demanded from the owner, hey, that's my boat in the window. I made it. And the owner said, no, no, boy. Listen, son. I bought that boat from some stranger, and if you want that boat, it's going to cost you $5. And the boy left the shop, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I, I don't know. I'm going to get some jobs around the neighborhood until I earn my $5. He did that. He went back to the pawn shop and bought the boat. And, and as he cradled his boat in his arms, and he said with great joy, little boat, this is amazing. I made you. You belong to me. But I lost you. But now I bought you back again. You're twice mine. Family, we are twice Christ." God made and shaped each one of us. But due to our sin, our rebellion, we have drifted away and we've become lost. But on the cross, Jesus purchased us. We were bought with a price, the price of the blood of Christ, shed for our atonement for sins. And because of that sacrifice, we are bought back. Forgiveness, gift of God, redemption through Christ. Colossians 1 says this, He has delivered us, that's God the Father, 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Do you see God pursuing sinners? He's done the work. He's rejoicing over you when you repent. Will you turn from your sin? Stop trying to justify yourself being your own Lord, your own Savior, doing what you want. Turn to Christ. Turn to God. Rest solely upon him. And maybe you're a follower of Christ this morning and you've repented and that's, that's entrance into the kingdom. But the Bible tells us as believers we are to continue in repentance and faith in our journey and our walk. Have you wandered? Do you need to come back? Maybe, maybe today's the day. So I'm back, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the rescue. Thank you for pursuing me. I'll leave you with this verse, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume, he was talking about judgment, Are you, or do you presume, Paul writes, on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Do you know that, family? I hope you do. Father, thank you for this Beautiful picture, Father, for the beautiful picture you've shown us, how you love, rescue, redeem, pursue sinners. And we are so thankful and grateful that you do. Left to ourselves, we will wander off into destruction. Left to ourselves, and we would never be found. So God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would draw us all to the person and work of Jesus today. Each and every one of us making a personal decision to trust in you and you alone. Died for sinners, rose from the dead, dead, pursue us as you do. And Lord, may we repent and turn and be carried off by the loving arms of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to respond now in faith, trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.